our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Studies indicate that 5 to 16% of children exhibit symptoms of sensory processing disorder. Have you heard of sensory processing disorder before? You may have a child who has some of the symptoms of a sensory processing issue right now and not even know about it. That's what we're going to talk about today. Today with us, we have Nancy Pesky. She is the co-author of the book, Raising a Sensory Smart Child, the Definitive Handbook for Helping Your Child with Sensory Processing Issues, which was just re-released and updated. And she is also the mother of a son who was diagnosed with a sensory processing disorder when he was just two years old. Welcome, Nancy. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about sensory processing disorder. For people that haven't heard that term and maybe aren't aware of what it encompasses, what is that and how do you know if your kid might have it? To understand sensory processing disorder, you have to know what sensory processing is because most people take it for granted. We don't have to think about our sensory processing. As I sit here in my office, I know where I am in relationship to my chair. I hear background sounds, but they don't bother me at all and they don't distract me. So if I have typical sensory processing, I just don't think about it, but My senses give me information that my brain makes sense of, in other words, processes, and it gives me a clear idea of what's happening in my body and in the world, in my environment. If I have sensory processing issues or disorder, something is going wrong at the brain level and it's like a traffic jam and my brain needs more time to struggle to sort it all out. So a kid with sensory processing disorder is actually experiencing their body in the world very differently from how the rest of us would experience it. Which can be difficult for those of us who might be parenting these children or teaching these children to understand. Because as you said, we don't even think about how we sense or experience the world. I would guess that a child who is experiencing the world very differently may act and behave differently in response to certain stimuli in ways that if I don't know about this, I'm going to think are like, that's weird. Or what's going on with that kid? Yeah. In fact, we have a chapter in Raising a Sensory Smart Child called, What is Up with This Child? (laughs) Because it's very confusing. So most of us have some mild uh, sensory preferences, let's call them, right? So if I... um, prefer a certain um, texture to my scrambled eggs. That's 
That's yes. But you know what I can make do if it's not quite right. So a child sensory processing disorder is going to have extreme responses to everyday experiences. And so if they're eating scrambled eggs, they have to be just right, or they'll go all day without eating. It's yeah. that extreme, right? That it's just so repulsive that they'll gag if the texture is off. So the most obvious thing is unusual responses to everyday sensations. The sun is too bright. I can't go outside. Or I'm walking in the woods and I hear bugs all around me and it's driving me crazy and I'm scared. So that, that would be an extreme response. But what we often might not think of is that there are also differences in their ability to perceive what the rest of us can perceive. It's not just oversensitivity, can be undersensitivity. So a child might stuff his mouth full of food because he actually can't feel that that mouth is full of food. Ah. Or this might be the child who in school can't quite manage their own personal bubble. And so they're in other people's spaces. Yes. And they're, they're the kids who walk down the hall running their finger along the wall because that helps them orient themselves. Uh, they're licking, chewing, biting, uh, touching because they need that sensory input to understand what's going on. What were the symptoms that you noticed with your son? When my son was first born and I tried to nurse him, I had all the books. I had a sister-in-law who was a, a nutritionist, so I should be able to do this. And I remember from home ec that babies nurse naturally. They, it's instinctual. I remember getting that correct on a test. This kid could not nurse. So Ooh. much easier on a test than in real life, yeah, isn't I'm it? like, what is up with this child? So that was the first thing. Um, and it turned out that there was a little trick I had to use with my finger to train his mouth to feel what he was supposed to feel uh-huh. when nursing. Otherwise, he wasn't going to get any food. Then when we would take him out in uh, the baby carrier, you know, the kind you wear out front, yep, and the wind would kick up, this kid would get hysterical, just laughing. And people would stare at us in the street like, gee, that's a happy baby. But he, it, it was as if he couldn't stop. So those were the first two signs, and they continued, um, and I kept going to my pediatrician saying, what's up with this child? Oh, well, you and your husband, this is your first child, you're older, don't read everything on the internet, everything's fine, everything's fine. Again and again and again, we heard that, and finally, when my son had not met his language milestones at 24 months, that's when my physician said, oh, well, maybe we should have an evaluation of his development. So it was a little frustrating that we lost all of this time when we, we clearly saw something was up. And it's back to parents. You really need to trust and listen to those instincts. And it's so hard because you will have professionals tell you you're overreacting. This probably isn't anything. And in In some cases, that may be true, but if you have concerns about your child, keep pushing. We have all heard so many stories where ultimately, guess what? The parent is right. And what's the downside? I could get a free early intervention um, or birth to three evaluation of my son for two hours. So I'd lose two hours and then I I would hear that nothing was wrong, so there was no reason to worry. 
How is that a downside? Yeah, right. Right. And how do parents access these services? You know, an overwhelmed mom of a uh, 20-month-old who is, I think their biggest question is, what's normal? Is this normal? And it's like you said, you know, do I trust my gut? Do I trust my pediatrician? My pediatrician thinks I'm crazy. So where do you reach out to who does these evaluations? There are developmental milestones that you can find online, and we listed them in our book, Raising a Sensory Smart Child. There are also development screeners. I had not realized this, but at the time my son was born, and even now the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests that pediatricians do these screeners. So they might be 15 questions asked of mom and dad. And when I discovered one, I realized my son had three red flags for autism at as early as 12 months old. But my pediatrician had not used it. So you can do some of your own um, research first by looking online in my book and seeing what the developmental milestones are. And then if you have any concerns and your child is under 36 months or three years, your state has an early intervention program, sometimes called a birth to three program or a zero to three program, and you can contact them for an evaluation. Now, as your child is getting closer to age three, or maybe is between age three and five, it gets a little different. So it could be that they get evaluated through the birth to three program and they should be getting some services, but now we're in a different government agency. It's the school district that provides them between ages three and five and ever after. And this is important. In birth to three services, the focus is on the family, so it's home life, and once they hit the school, then it's more school-based. So if your child is having trouble with eating, for example, because of their sensory issues, it's a little tougher because that's not a school skill. You know, as you talk, I am uh, suddenly remembering some sensitivities that I have things that, you know, I've just always thought was normal because it's been my life, my whole life. Apparently I have issues with textures of food. Ask my mom how that went when I was a baby. I hated sitting on the grass. I didn't like the feel of wind on my face. Obviously I'm, I'm coping as an adult right now. Are there kids who have sensory processing issues, but might not qualify, you know, under a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder? And how can parents help children who have issues with sensing? Let's say you have a child who complains when he has to put on the pants because that tag, that tag is just bothering me. I can't wear these or I can't eat that food. And so often in traditional parenting, you basically hear, suck it up. Yeah. How can we handle our children sensitively and help them cope and develop coping skills? Sensory issues are on a spectrum, so uh, it's challenging for parents because you think, why can't you just suck it up? And, and maybe they can at, at some times, um, but what we want to try to do for our kids is really get to understand their unique sensory situation. If your sensory issues are actually interfering with your everyday activities of life, it's ADL in occupational therapy. So that would be 
eating, socializing, learning, playing, then your son or daughter might qualify for services and occupational therapy for sensory issues. But if they don't qualify but still have sensory issues, there's a lot you can do. There's a concept called a sensory diet, which is really not about food. It's about having certain types of sensory experiences throughout the day, not all at once, but throughout the course of the day to help your brain to process sensations a little more typically and to keep you on an even keel. So if you try to go all day without food, you're going to get pretty cranky and pretty hungry, right? So you might need to have uh, sensory input in your mouth more often than, than just having those three meals and a couple of snacks. So these kids might benefit from having something that's non-toxic that they can chew on at any time, right? Yeah. I'm chewing on my pen, which by the way, I did all the way through grade school and high school and continue to this day. Yeah, and in fact, I know that you can buy clear non-toxic plastic tubes that go over the end of pens and pencils. So you're chewing that. To oh. save the pen or pencil. Yeah. Birthday yeah. present, Jen. Janet, I was <laughs> hoping for like a cruise or something. <laughs> I got, you know what? I chew on my margarita straws too. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. My son chewed on all of his straws and part of it was stabilizing his mouth because he couldn't quite feel where everything was in his mouth. So he liked his straws and he liked his sippy cups and anything. And to this day, he still likes, as an adult, having a straw. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You and I had previously talked for a blog post for Building Boys, and we'll put the link in the show notes. And this was a few years ago, but we talked Mm -hmm. about the importance of movement for kids that have sensory processing issues. Janet and I talk often about how important movement is for boys in general. Mm-hmm. It's super important for kids with sensory processing issues, right? Yes. Well, all kids l- learn through play and through movement. And the way we do school, we tend to be too quick to have little kids sitting for long periods. And even when they get to middle school, sometimes a lot of middle schools have cut physical education as well as not having recess. And so it really affects kids' ability to focus. They're, they're really supposed to be moving. I agree. Movement is a big one. So part of that movement, Nancy, is, you know, we have the five senses that our listeners are probably all familiar with, our, our taste and our sight and our hearing. But often when we're talking about pro- sensory processing disorders, the words vestibular and proprioception come up. Can you explain those for our listeners? Yes, those are two hidden senses. So the vestibular sense is our sense of gravity, and the receptors are in our inner ears. You've ever been in an elevator and you feel it moving, even though the lights aren't going on the the numbers. You know, you know, you're going up because you feel it. Yeah, your sense, right? And your proprioceptive sense is your body awareness. So if you ask me to raise my hand and then wiggle my left index finger, I can do that. I know exactly where my left index finger is. But if I have poor sensory processing, I might have to look at it to figure out where that finger Mm. is to move it. So it's your body awareness. 
Mm-hmm. And kids with sensory issues very often need to have throughout the course of the day, as part of a sensory diet, movement activities that, again, help retrain the brain, but also keep them on an even keel. We call this heavy work. Heavy work is anything where you're pushing, pulling, lifting, or carrying something of weight, whether it's your body or something else. So it's the kid in the classroom who will focus better if she can lean up against a wall and do wall push-ups, right? Or chair push-ups, grabbing either side of the chair and pushing up. Uh, It's carrying books and chairs across the room. It's taking wet laundry out of a washing machine and putting it into a dryer and then carrying up the clothes. All of these kind of movements that affect the receptors in the joints and ligaments constitute heavy work, and they're giving you proprioceptive and vestibular input as well as tactile input. So if I'm hanging from the monkey bars, if you think about it, I'm hanging from the monkey bars, I'm stretching my joints and ligaments, and I can feel that, and the receptors are taking that information and sending it to my brain. So I'm I'm pulling down or I'm holding my weight, and that's proprioceptive input, and it's also vestibular and tactile, and we call it heavy work. Hmm. So I wonder, one of my questions for you is going to be, why are we seeing more sensory processing issues, disorder? And just as you're saying that, I'm thinking, wow, you know, our kids were doing a lot of farm work and heavy work in our previous generations. Is this a part of the puzzle of why we're seeing more sensory processing issues or, or are we seeing more in the, say the last decade? I think we are seeing more because first, I think there are more kids who have sensory processing disorder. It's very difficult to get the research on this, but we're seeing more of it overall, even in, in babies and toddlers who haven't yet had that experience of you have to sit all day at school. And uh, so we know that it's, it's organic for them. It's not environmental. But we're also changing our expectations of childhood. Yeah. When I was little, I would leave the house and go and play with my friends in the park and come back by the time the streetlights were on. And I was five. Now, you know, we've got kids who never go to the park, uh, even when they're 12 and 14 years old. So we're not getting as much movement. So much of what play constituted when I was a kid, involved physical movement. Mm -hmm. That's not as much the case now. I also believe that there's a problem with making movement always about competition. Mm. So you don't just play soccer. You have to be on the soccer team. And then the kids who are better at kicking get to play more often than the other kids. And I think that we need to even that out a little more with physical education and with uh, just our communities to have more opportunities for movement that are creative, they're expressive, they're just fun. We're just having fun in our bodies, running around and climbing trees and, and being on the swing set. So we can help all of our kids, boys, girls, children with and without sensory processing issues by reincorporating movement 
into our lives, making movement a natural part of the rhythm of our days and weeks. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart Baby Formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And By Heart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B Y. H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast, and it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer, and additional terms and conditions may apply. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is, deal with it. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, Increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit. With free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time, your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. Beyond that, it sounds like uh, if you have a child that has sensory processing issues, it's very individualized how you manage them both at home, 
how you work with the uh, educators or childcare providers to help your child. What is that process like? How do you figure out what your child needs. It's important to develop what I call sensory smarts, understanding that your child's sensory issues are real and they need help with them. And then you have to have good communication with your child. Now, some kids are nonverbal. They're speaking through their behavior and you have to tune in to what's working for them and what's not working for them so that you can support them. Initially, you support them by advocating for them, right? And then what you do is through your conversations, you teach them about their own sensory issues so they know what they need and they can advocate for themselves when you're not around. Mm -hmm. So they can say to the teacher, hey, I think I need to change my seat because the bright light is coming in through the window and I, there's glare on the smart board and I can't read it. I know you and I have talked about this, Jennifer, but um, very often adults have this instant reaction to kids where, where if we're not expecting them to say what they say, we say, that's ridiculous. You know, it's, we yeah. just miss them instantly. Yeah, we discount them. Yeah, and here's a kid trying so hard to speak up for themselves and what they need to be able to manage their sensory issues and meet the social expectations and we're shutting them down right away. So this is very important to be aware of as a parent and anyone who's an educator or working with kids. You end up having to do a lot of uh, social support for your child as well, because the odds that your child is going to be met with a welcoming attitude every time he uh, expresses a need is slim to none. So you end up having those conversations too. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. Let's talk about screens. Screens are an issue for every single parent I know these days. Screens are often sort of positioned as like the opposite of movement. We're all worried about our kids just sitting and spending too much time in front of screens and not doing anything else. I know that one of the chapters of the revised version of your book is about technology. So what have you learned? What is the role that technology and screens can play for kids and families dealing with sensory issues? Technology is everywhere. It's integrated into our lives, and that horse has left the barn. We're going to have our kids working with technology at school and at home and walking down the street. It's, it's going to be there. So if your hope is to avoid technology altogether, that's not very realistic. After a certain point, it's, you're just going to have to figure out how to integrate it into their lives. One thing that is important to to remember is that kids with sensory issues often have a different relationship to technology than you might expect. It's actually helping them to better understand what they're trying to learn. So in other words, if I'm in a typical classroom, even with younger kids these days, a lot of times you're expected to sit and listen to the teacher explain things. That may, that might not be how you learn. So If you're a 10-year-old and you have a cell phone in your pocket, you might take it out when the teacher is talking, not to play a video game or to text your friend, but to look something up online because you're not following quickly enough and you can't understand what the teacher is saying. That happened to my son. He was accused of playing around on his iPad when really what he was doing was trying to follow what the teacher was saying. 
that's one thing to be aware of. Another thing to be aware of is that very often kids with sensory issues have visual differences. They actually might think in pictures. So they don't look things up by Google. They look things up by Google images. That's how they organize information in their brain. So if they can go to YouTube and see an instructional video, if they can, um, watch a documentary and read the subtitles at the same time that they're seeing the visual images and hearing what's being said, that really helps them to learn. So we have to be aware of this so that we don't assume that they are using technology irresponsibly. I would like to know how a teacher in a classroom can support these kids with sensory processing issues. You've got 28 kids, you've probably got 28 different levels of processing. And so speak to the teachers out there who who have to navigate this every day and may not have the patience or or the bandwidth to really support every child. How can teachers in general support kids with uh, sensory processing issues? My son had a teacher who all of the other parents steered me towards. They said, see if you can't get a man to be with that teacher because she was known for keeping the volume of the classroom down. She had a little uh, traffic light and she would do something with this, this paper traffic light to show the kids that their noise level was in the yellow zone. We don't want it to the red zone. And when they would see that, they would bring down their level of noise. My son has sensory processing disorder and auditory processing disorder, so it's difficult for him to block out background noise. And he, at that age, would get very overstimulated by all of that noise. So I said, thank you for accommodating the kids with auditory processing disorder. And she said, what? (laughs) Because she said she had started doing it simply because she noticed that there were always a few kids, usually boys, that when the sound in the classroom got to a certain level, would get wired and hyperactive and couldn't bring themselves back down. So this is a case of how, how what we do to help kids with sensory issues can help all kids. It's just that it's really necessary for mm-hmm. sensory kids. And then it's a matter of the team, the parent, the child, and the teacher working out what they need. A lot of kids with sensory issues benefit from having what are called fidgets. In other words, something that they can hold in their hands and fidget with. It could be a koosh ball. It could be a women's hair tie, you know, those scrunchies, I guess they call them. Those are super popular again. Um, Stress balls that you squeeze, right? So I gave one to my son and he said, that just distracts me. Then I'm just paying attention to that. So it's it's something that works for a lot of kids, but you have to customize it to a particular child. Yeah. Absolutely should never, never, never take away recess. Oh, please. Please say it yes. again for those in the background. Never, never, never take away recess. It's as counterproductive as it gets. Yeah. Better thing to do is to expect them to spend some of recess, just a couple of minutes, doing heavy work so that they can feel in their bodies, oh, when I do that, 
I'm more calm and collected. You might even have a ritual set up where before that child comes in from recess, they do some, you know, going across the monkey bars and some wall push-ups before they line up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you can make it a positive way of getting that that type of movement and not punish them by taking away their opportunity for movement. And this is good for all the kids. This yes. is not just good for that, that subset of kids. This is good for everyone. And I wanted to talk about that from the classroom perspective as well. Um, Janet, you know, Nancy, you may as well. I also write about education and Mm -hmm. I did an article about a year ago that was talking about universal design and inclusive Mm -hmm. teaching practices. And some of these really smart teachers that I talked to pointed out that a lot of these things that many of us think of as interventions for kids with specific needs can be very beneficial for all students. So Mm -hmm. a child with sensory processing disorder or auditing processing disorder may benefit from having the uh, subtitles on as you're watching that video or documentary. But as she pointed out, just do that routinely because it doesn't only help the students who have a diagnosed issue, it helps your English language learners. It helps students who may not have a diagnosed issue. So when you present your information using as many different senses and modalities as possible, you drastically increase the chances that all of your students are going to get something out of it. Yes. You know, I travel and and work in a lot of schools, and I am constantly talking about jump rope. We have lost jump roping as a, a recess activity There's a school here in Portland that the entire school, first through eighth grade, jump ropes for about the first 10 to 15 minutes of the day. And as you're saying, you know, the heavy movement, well, what's better than jumping and the rhythm and the breath? And I just feel like it would address a lot of these sensory issues that we're talking about today. Yes. So many of the things that uh, are from previous generations can help so much, whether it's jump roping or playing four square, something called mumble tea peg. Mumble tea peg is kind of like four square. You do it as an individual and you take one of those red rubber balls from the school system. And so you throw it up against the wall four times and then you bounce it four times and then you throw it against the wall and have it bounce once each time. And there's all of these sequences that you work through. And if you make a mistake, then you're out. And I think it is these archetypal activities that we used to do are really valuable and useful. And let's bring some of them back. They're fun and engaging and they don't take a lot of equipment and they get kids moving and interacting with each other. Yes. And I also want to point out that it's so important as the kids get towards middle school and everybody gets all anxious about getting them into a good college, whatever that is, we tend to forget that there's still children in bodies that need to move. So they have some embarrassment about playing something babyish, perhaps, you know, maybe that's something that the little kids do, but they still need opportunities for movement 
that are just free and fun. I would love to see folk dancing come back into schools. One of the things about jump roping, I'll just jump back into jump roping, is (laughs) school doing first through eighth grade, this gets the eighth graders helping the first graders. So they can kind of let their guard down a little bit and be playful with yeah. in the guise of helping the little ones. So thinking about that in a creative way, how can you get the older ones engaged by just teaching or playing with younger ones? This conversation has been so enlightening and I know our listeners have learned a lot also. I've learned a lot. Where can people find your book and where can they find you? Raising a Sensory Smart Child, the definitive handbook for helping your child with sensory issues, is found in most bookstores in the parenting section, but you can also buy it online. I'm at sensorysmartparent.com. I also have a YouTube channel, Nancy Pesky, P-E-S-K-E, and I have a lot of videos there about helping your child with discipline issues and smell sensitivities, stuff like that. And the Raising a Sensory Smart Child Facebook page is always very active. And finally, if you go to sensorysmartparent.com, you can get a free sensory checklist that can help you to better understand your child's sensory issues. Just sign up for my newsletter and you'll get the uh, PDF. Nice. Thank you. Nancy, this has been a really fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I know that you have helped a lot of parents understand what is going on with their child. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. Can I ask one more question that we can maybe add or not, Janet? Sure. Nancy, update us. We talked about your son at age two. How is he now after getting help and working with you? How old is he and uh, what's he doing at this point in life? He's 20 years old. He's at the Community Technical College, started in video game design and decided to move over to liberal arts so that he can become a psychologist because he feels very strongly that kids are facing unrealistic expectations about how to study, how to be in school, just how to be. So he feels really passionate about helping other kids because of the struggles that he has had. He's a good self-advocate. He's always explaining proprioception to somebody. (laughs) He basically is happy, healthy, social, all the things that you could want in a child. And he has no shame about who he is and what his particular challenges are. And one of the things that he said that I find just wonderful is we're all different and we're all the same. It all depends on how we want to look at it. Sensory issues can make you different, but different in a good way. Nice, Nancy. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.